I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. Hey there, Parallaxies listeners. On this edition of the show, we return to the topic of U.S. foreign policy and global geopolitics. Specifically, we're focusing in on the idea of a second Cold War or new Cold War being underway and the potential shifting of geopolitical alliances. Joining us to unpack all of that and much more is Ted Snyder, a geopolitical analyst and a regular contributor to Antiwar.com. Many thanks to the folks at Antiwar.com for helping me get in touch with Ted. This is a rather fascinating conversation. We'll be talking about a number of different things, including Biden's foreign policy record so far as president, Saudi Arabia, Iran, Russia, China, and uh, a lot more in between all of that. So with all that in mind, let's get right to the conversation with Ted Snyder of Antiwar.com. Hey there, Parallax News listeners. Before we continue our conversation on this edition of Parallax Views, I want to notify California listeners of the program about one of our sponsors, the Therapy Practice of Alexander Yu. Yu is an experienced teletherapist since 2008, and he goes by the motto, Flow, Adapt, Change, as Lao Tzu would say. And he wants to accompany you on your journey of self-improvement. Now again, this applies to California listeners of the program. Alexander is a licensed psychotherapist and teletherapist. And if you'd like his services, then please contact him at Alexander U. That's Alexander U Y O O dot com. And he can be reached by email at therapy at alexanderu.com or by phone at 323-834-9828. That's 323-834-9828. This is only available once again to my California listeners. But if you need anything related to therapy needs, please be sure to contact our sponsor, Alexander Yu.
Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest I've been meaning to have on for some time now, Ted Snyder, a regular contributor at antiwar.com, also writes pieces occasionally for everyone from Mondo Weiss to Responsible Statecraft, and all those websites are friends of the show, so it's great to have you on, Ted. Thanks, JJ. It's great to be on. So I want to talk about your recent pieces on uh, sort of the changing geopolitical relationships, uh, especially with regards to Saudi Arabia. But first, maybe you could tell my listeners a little bit about how you became interested in issues uh, related to geopolitics and foreign policy, because I feel like a lot of us that talk about this stuff, we're kind of out in the wilderness. Yeah, I, I think, I don't know, I came out in a very circuitous way because my, um, my training is actually in philosophy. Um, and and I think I think what happened with me is I was I was looking at I was looking at the political stuff like a philosopher, not like a journalist or a politician. And what I started to do is look at patterns. Um, <clears throat> when I would look at stuff in the in the media, I would see a whole bunch of things that were apparently disconnected. And then I would realize if you put them all together, you get this new picture where it's like, oh, this is what really happens. This is what explains the separate dots. And so. Um, I think I take a different approach. I approach geopolitics as a philosopher, um, and I look at a whole bunch of points that don't seem to make sense, and then look for an emerging pattern that gives you the key, and you go, ah, here's what's going on. Well, I think that's a, a really important sort of approach that we need to use more when it comes to looking at geopolitics. And I think it was very useful in regards to uh, how you look at Saudi Arabia. And you recently wrote a piece entitled Saudi Arabia shifting alliances question mark and you're viewing uh, a number of moves that Saudi Arabia has been making um, within the sort of regional and broader context of a second Cold War perspective. Um, I guess I want to hit on that first uh, because there's a lot of debate. Should we be using the term uh, a second Cold War or shouldn't yeah. we to be describing rising tensions with yeah. uh, U.S. and China and Russia? Um, yeah. So why do you prefer that term? So, you know, there's a there's a lot of debate about the, the language. Um, I, I think so. I think there's two things to look at. I think the first is, you know, the the, the Cold War ended and then there was a period of sort of a cold peace. And, and the question is, are we back into a sort of a Cold War? And, and I think that you can't deny that we are. I think that Biden especially is, is pushing and pushing and pushing towards a Cold War. And um, I think Russia and China were very, very reluctant to accept that. They, they didn't want the world divided back up into blocks. I think they were looking for a way to um, create sort of a world order that transcended blocks where they could sort of be major respected powers with the U.S. Um, I think Putin tried very, very hard to, to transcend blocks into some kind of different arrangement. And I think that... Um, I think that for Putin by 2014, he'd kind of given that up and then and then recently really gave that up and saw the world's a core war. I think China was much slower to get there. Um, I think it wasn't until Trump really um, seriously went after China with sanctions around 2016 that China started to see that they were never going to be accepted as a partner, that they were in some kind of cold war. But but I'm told, um, I was talking to um, Richard Sakwa, who's one of the world's, I think, leading authorities on, on you know, Russia and on this stuff. And um, Sakwa told me that it really wasn't until 2021, it really wasn't until Biden that China really yielded and said, OK, look, we're in a Cold War. 
And then the question is, what do you call it? Is it a new Cold War or a second Cold War? I call it a second Cold War because new Cold War has this idea of like, you know, the new Star Trek, like it's the same thing, but a second version. And it's not a second version, you know, JG, it's really different because the first Cold War, the world was divided, you know, in, along ideological lines, you know, communism versus capitalism or communism versus democracy. There's no ideological lines here. This is a straight out, like the states wants to be the hegemon, the states wants to be the economic power. Um, and this, this is just a sort of competition for global, you know, economic dominance. It's not an ideological war. So it's a very different kind of Cold War. Um, the world's not divided into these two sort of neat blocks. So I prefer to call it a second Cold War. I just wanted to add to that really briefly and then touch on something uh, with regards to Biden. Um, I guess the, the main reaction I get to uh, that term, the second Cold War, is people will say, well, it, we're not in the same environment we were during the original Cold War. You know, the, the economy is much more, we're in a globalized world now. So no one would risk a, a new type of war scenario. But I, I yeah. think that that's kind of nitpicking a bit when people put it that way, because as you said, we're not saying that it's the exact same type of Cold War that we yeah. had in the 20th century. It's very different, JG, but that's a great point because that's what China thought too. China thought that with new sort of globalization, that the U.S. would never sort of shoot itself in the foot and 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 sort of stop the very thing that had made it a leader. And I think that's part of the reason why China thought this couldn't happen. And I think they were shocked to realize that in a globalized world, that the U.S. was really benefiting from sort of trade with China, that that they would do this. But I think you've got all the patterns of the Cold War again. You've got the Cold War rhetoric. You've got blocks forming up again with the, you know, the Quad and with AUKUS. You've got um, the aggression. You've got the sanctions. You've got the states trying to draw countries into their block. Um, you've got the CIA setting up a China division, just like we did in the Cold War. Um, it's it's got all the marks of a Cold War, but because it's a very different Cold War, it's not just the states against. Russia now, if it's if if there's going to be the states against Russia, it's going to be the states against Russia and China. It's not ideological. It's very different. So it's it's not just it's not just a restart of the old Cold War. It's really quite a different Cold War. And and so like I don't really care about the words, but that's why I call it the second Cold War. Do you think a lot of this stuff could have potentially been? I mean, I would say avoid it. I mean, for for anything that people can say about Putin. Um, Politically, um, and I'm not—I wouldn't call myself a, a Putin supporter or anything like that. But you know, after the Cold War, I think we basically said to Russia, "You're going to be a, a subordinate state to us within our, our U.S.-led system. You're not an equal. Get over it." And I could see why that's created this reaction, where you know, Putin has said, "No, we're not going to do that." Um, so, in ways, I, I think we sort of created some of the groundwork for some of this. The United States did, at least. I think that's another great point. I think we created almost all of the groundwork because I think Putin following Gorbachev was very anxious to see the Cold War as something that Russia had really contributed to ending by ending the Soviet Union. And it was the it was the vision of both Gorbachev and Putin and, and to some extent Yeltsin also to, to create a new transformed world where Russia and the states, rather than being on different blocks, could work together as superpowers um, and, and, and sort of work cooperatively. 
Putin even offered to join NATO. I mean, I mean, he was really serious. He was really very serious about this. And it became very clear to him by like 2012, 2014, that the States was never going to let Russia be a partner. They were never going to be anything but a, a subordinate member of a U.S. led thing. Um, and so so Putin realized that not only was he never going to get this cooperative world, but at the same time, you got major NATO encroachment. Um, completely surrounding Russia and and this combination of of a lack of cooperation and b total aggression um is what really made Russia realize you know we're not only be strangled out as a partner or an economic partner um we're under military threat and and those were the moves that made Putin really despair of what he really wanted he really wanted to be a partner of the of the west um and he despaired of that and, and so I think this is very much a, a, a Cold War of choice. It was very much a Cold War that could be avoided. And, and a whole series of American presidents, um, starting from the breaking of the promise not to expand NATO, you know, going back at least to Clinton, um, and then all the way through today with, with continued talk of, of um, bringing Ukraine into NATO and bringing Georgia into NATO. and. Um, growing arms in Romania and Poland and, and the recent meeting with the president of Ukraine where, where Biden was talking very clearly about integration into the, into the Western alliance and, and um, increasing funds for Ukraine. So the, the, these are moves that made Russia very historically afraid um, and, and really gave up a dream to end the Cold War. That was Gorbachev's dream, right, was to end the Cold War. Um, and it was it was really very much America that shattered that dream. And, and Russia and China didn't want to face that or accept that. It's, it's very recent that Russia and China have said, yeah, we've got to accept the framework. It's a Cold War. We didn't want it, but we're stuck on a Cold War. So then with regards to Biden, there's times where I felt that Biden was at least signaling, uh, you know, a different course of action. With regards to U.S. foreign policy, I particularly liked what he said um, at one point about, you know, we, we may have hostilities with certain nations on ideological grounds, but maybe we can find ways to work together. And he was signaling this towards China, saying maybe we can work together on the issues that matter while disagreeing on other things. Um, but you're also saying, you know, that hasn't exactly panned out. Do you think there's a disconnect between some of the things Biden has said in the past year and what he has actually done? I do. And I, I think you could really see that really come out in his speech of the UN General Assembly, where where Biden was talking about, you know, an, an, an age of of diplomacy and, and the end of war. But that hasn't been present in any of his actions. Um, you, you know, China and Russia have reached out to to try to, you know, create a new relationship. They haven't gotten met with anything but, you know, hostility where where Biden's continuing to talk about um, NATO encroachment to Russia. He's continuing to be incredibly provocative in in Taiwan, um, and even outside of there. Like if you if you look even in, in you know Latin America, wherever you want to look, you're you're not seeing this promised age of of diplomacy. Um, it sounded like that, but I think these have been very very empty words. I, I talk about this. I talk about Biden's speeches as being you know words cord of meaning like. You know, there's there's these words, but there's no meaning behind them because we're not we're not really seeing diplomacy. Um, like 
where in China, Russia, we think diplomacy. Um, so yeah, I, I think Biden spoke some of the words, but there's no meaning in those words. Hey, Parallax News listeners. Before we continue the show, I've got a movie that I want to tell you about. Check out the film Tremel by Christopher Jason Bell, available on the Slam Dance YouTube channel. The film follows Dale as he lives a solitary life in a small town, his only outlet being conversations with the local pharmacist, Muhammad. As time passes, Dale slowly begins to reveal more of his life and history to Muhammad. Lauded for its empathy, Tremel highlights the forgotten community member in a time when there is no community, and examines what happens when someone's only human connection is a service worker. You can watch over at slamdance.com slash watch slash tremel or at youtube.com slash slamdance. Check it out, folks. Now, getting into Saudi Arabia, because that's initially why I wanted to have you on. Yeah. Um, what do I mean when we say shifting alliances? And, and what are the some of the subtle moves regionally that Saudi Arabia has been making? I, I think particularly there's been some moves made with regards to Iran that have been uh, pretty telling. Yeah. So so I think you're right to, to divide um, Saudi Arabia's moves into the sort of regional ones with Iran and the more kind of global Cold War ones with China and Russia. And, and I think there's been, you know, there's been three or four moves regionally that are significant, but the most significant, like it's really huge, is that they're talking. Um, for the longest time, you know, Saudi Arabia to talk to Iran was was poison. I mean, these were the regional polar enemies. There was Saudi Arabia and the Sunni were leading the Sunni world and Iran leading the Shia world. And, and they were they were like completely monstrous enemies. They didn't speak. What Saudi Arabia wanted was to crush Iran. And what they wanted to do was draw the United States into that war. They wanted the U.S. to fight that war against Iran. They wanted to crush them. And then suddenly, about a year ago, um, they're talking. They're first talking secretly in Baghdad. Um, Iran has now publicly said they're talking. We know they've met four or five or six times now. Um, they're very seriously talking. So, so picture a Middle Eastern world, JG, where you've got Iran in the American, sorry, you've got Saudi Arabia in the American camp, increasingly growing closer and closer to Israel, um, supportive of the Abraham Accords in this sort of alliance against Iran. So for Saudi Arabia to step out of that and start now talking to Iran, this, this realization that the dream of stopping the nuclear accord, of crushing Iran, of working with Israel and the states to crush Iran didn't work. They didn't draw America into a war. They haven't in any way stopped Iran. And so Saudi Arabia adopts now what, what they call their plan B. And that's if, if we fail to get Israel and the states to crush Iran, then we better start talking to Iran. So that's the biggest one is just that they're talking. In recent days, it's gone well beyond talk. Um, Iran and Saudi Arabia have now announced that Saudi Arabia is going to begin exports from Iran again. Now, that doesn't sound big, but remember two things. One is you've now got an economic agreement between enemies. But bigger, remember, there's American sanctions on Iran. 
So this means that Saudi Arabia is stepping outside of that camp, right? And they're willing to go against that camp and trade with Iran. That's a very big change. The third is that Iran has now given very confusing signals that, well, maybe we could live with the nuclear agreement as long as Iran doesn't get a nuclear weapon. This has gone from not talking at all to doing everything they could to crush the nuclear agreement to now saying, okay, we can live with Iran, have a nuclear agreement. And then the, the fourth one is that they've even floated the ideas now of, of reopening their consulates in each other's countries. And, you know, there's another point in this economic one, and I don't know if this will come to fruition or not, but Iran and Saudi Arabia have actually even talked about Saudi Arabia helping Iran to circumvent American sanctions with oil. So you've got Saudi Arabia talking to Iran really seriously about stepping outside of the Israeli-American camp. That doesn't mean they're going to leave it all together. Saudi Arabia is not going to turn down American arms and stuff like that. But for Saudi Arabia to be talking this way about leaving the Israeli-American camp and talking to Iran like this, this is a very big change. And it's only, you know, a little over a year old change. So I want to get into the uh, sort of broader shifting alliances um, with Saudi Arabia in the more global context rather than the regional one. But do you do you get the impression that maybe Saudi Arabia and Saudi's um, rulers, that they've maybe been reading the tea leaves a little bit? Because I feel like, you know, Obama and the uh, JCPOA, the, the Iran deal, was one thing that they've been reading. I, I think also, especially within the sort of political media class in this country, there's been a real, real sharp turn um, against Saudi Arabia, especially after the death of uh, Khashoggi. So do you think maybe Saudi Arabia is taking things into account uh, with regards to all of that and saying, hey, maybe we're not going to be always able to rely on the U.S. as an ally? I do. I think that's a very important point. I, I think this is very pragmatic um, that, that they realize they can't always depend on the United States for um, security assurances. They can't always depend on the United States to consider Saudi Arabia preferences in the region. Um, there was backlash against Saudi Arabia with the 9-11 material. There was backlash against Saudi Arabia for the Khashoggi killing. Um, they also despaired of a number of important moves that a number of presidents have made. They weren't pleased that America was willing to talk to Iran about the JCPOA. Um, they weren't pleased that, um, that, that Trump didn't respond when Saudi Arabia's oil refineries got hit. Um, they weren't pleased when Biden pulled out of Afghanistan. And so I think in these, I mean, that's actually between us, that's five things we've named that, that made the Saudis realize that maybe at a pragmatic level, we can't count on America anymore. Um, and so not that we're going to leave the American camp, but we might need to take some steps outside of it and start looking at some other ideas. And, and with that, they kind of made their own Asian pivot. Um, I was just going to add to that really quickly, too. I think yeah. there's also a sense of that um, with public officials in the U.S., too, that, you know, th there has been a sort of, I think, public change in opinion on Saudi Arabia, especially after Khashoggi. So you have a lot of public officials who wouldn't say uh, negative things about Saudi Arabia in the past that are starting to think, hey, maybe I should say something about this, this Khashoggi incident. Yeah. So, you know, I, I feel like uh, U.S. officials are being pushed just by changing public opinion as well. And that's also creating tensions between the US yeah. and Saudi Arabia in some ways. You know, I, I think you're I think you're totally right. I, I think that the for me, the weird part about that, as as bad as the Khashoggi thing was, and don't get me wrong, I'm not 
it was really bad, right? But it took that, right? And not, not an embargo that's killing thousands of people in Yemen, not a war on Yemen, not human rights. Like, like all of that stuff, okay, we can live with that. But when you kill a Jew, right? The, the reason I mentioned the Khashoggi thing was because I, you know, I think it was Hillary Clinton that came out and supported this one documentary on Khashoggi's death and, and slammed Saudi Arabia um, for Khashoggi's death. But you're right. I mean, we don't hear anyone talking about Yemen, you know, uh, except people on Twitter like me and Daniel Larison who are tweeting Yemen can't wait. Uh, but that's not apparently what's pushing people. No. And in fact, in fact, the states is still willing, as we found out last week, right? They're still willing to sell um, offensive weapons to Saudi Arabia to go on bombing Yemen, right? So like, like that's the one part we're okay with still, right? So, so I mean, America's foreign policy on Saudi Arabia is, is disgraceful. It's humiliating. Um, but I do think you're right that part of the change in Saudi Arabia has been, as you said, sort of reading these tea leaves. Um, and they've made not, not insignificant glances towards China and Russia in response to that. So let's talk about those glances towards Russia and China. What are some of the examples that come to mind? Well, I think I think there's sort of three really important ones. Um, one directly with China, one directly with Russia, and one kind of larger one in the region. Um, the, 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 the sort of direct one with Russia was a, a recent signing of a joint um, military cooperation agreement with Russia. Um, and again, that doesn't mean that, that, that they're not going to accept American arms too, but, but Saudi Arabia just signed a joint military cooperation agreement with Russia. That's, that's a very big you know, look to Russia. They also just recently talked about um, um, sort of a very, very large diplomatic and economical partnership with China that, that China rather, I found shockingly, called a strategic partnership. Um, that's a that's a big word, right? China uses the word strategic partnership to talk about the relationship with Russia, um, but but they they were saying that Saudi Arabia is a um, priority for them diplomatically in the Middle East, and Saudi Arabia said that China is a very important partner. Um, so we saw this very um, very large language in the sort of economic diplomatic partnership with China. We saw a very significant signing of a military partnership with Russia. And then JG, the other one that that I like talking about, because I think for some reason no one in the West does talk about this. I think it's kind of like the least talked about thing in the West is is this very very important organization called the Shanghai Cooperative um, Organization, which just nobody talks about. Um, I, I have yet, to admit I was unaware of it before I. Nobody like it's 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 amazing. It's never discussed in the Western media, but. The Shanghai Cooperative Organization is an organization made up of, get these countries, okay, China, Russia, India, Pakistan, Iran, and a couple of the smaller countries. Now, just, just to give you sort of a global context here, that represents 43% of the world's population. It represents 25% of the world's land mass, 25% of the world's economy, and four of its nuclear powers. And its, its express purpose is not to be military. It's not to be like a NATO type alliance. It's meant to be an economic and diplomatic counterweight to America. 
So if America's dream is for a unipolar world where they're in complete charge, the entire purpose of the SCO is for these disrespected but important nations like China and Russia to balance the states out and put an end to the America's hegemony, to put an end to the unipolar world and, and, and create this multipolar world. Now, Saudi Arabia is not a full member, but they just the other day became, became a dialogue partner to the SEO. So, so beginning steps of joining the SEO. Now, now, get the meaning of that, JG. Like, they're joining an organization whose express purpose is to counterbalance an American unipolar world. Um, in terms of the Cold War language we've been talking about, that is a very significant step um, to join the group that's trying to end American leadership. So this is a very bold move by Saudi Arabia. And, and, and so I think you've got, aside from that economic and diplomatic partnership with China and military partnerships with Russia, you've got Saudi Arabia saying that we're willing to dialogue with this group who wants to counterbalance um, American hegemony or hegemony. Um, I would say hegemony because I studied ancient Greek and it's, it's a hegemony in Greek. Um, notice also, JG, that Iran on the same day became a full partner of the SEO. So this is Saudi Arabia also joining a group with Iran. So this is a large move with Iran and a large move with Russia and China. Um, really significant. I don't know if it made the Western press at all. Yeah, for me, it's it's interesting, too, because I, I think uh, one of the biggest disappointments for me with uh, the Biden presidency so far has been, A, uh, we really haven't stopped supporting Saudi Arabia when it comes to uh, Yemen. And also, uh, you know, I was hoping, uh, as were a lot of people um, at the National Iranian American Council, who I'm very uh, fond of, uh, people like Dr. Asal Rod and others, uh, that we were going to get back into the JCPOA. And it seems like there has been no movement uh, towards that, that we've kept the sanctions, that it's uh, killing Iranians, and also it's actually emboldening uh, hardliners and uh, characters like Raisi in Iran. Uh, I think we've been making a lot of strange moves that are, I mean, to me, th this is all madness. <laughs> yeah, um, there's a lot there to talk about. I, I mean, it's not at all clear to me that that important female states weren't supporting or rooting for the election of Raisi because if you got a hardliner in there, then you could you could, you know, well, talk I mean, about I mean, posing around again. But not to interrupt you, but I mean, I think John Bolton wrote a whole article a while back saying he wanted Raisi to win because yeah, it was some conflict. Yeah, was it Bolton? I think it, it was, was John Bolton. It was some. Um, it was it was um, Elliot Abrams. Oh, okay, okay. Well, my yeah. apologies for getting that wrong. No, no, no. But but you're you're right on that. You're right on the topic. Abrams actually wrote a um, an article on why the U.S. supports the the you know Raisi because the idea is how do you pose Rouhani? Like how do you make a villain of a guy who says like yeah I'll, I'll be friends with you I'll I'll think right. So they were hoping. But then what happens is Raisi comes in, and I don't know what it means. You know, a hardliner. He he's he's he, he's totally willing to open negotiations with the the JCPOA again, but. But although the Americans say they're losing patience with Iran, it's quite the contrary. I mean, Iran's losing patience with America. They're really losing patience with Biden. And, and they're really losing patience with Biden, I think, for two main, two or three main reasons. One is, you know, JG, this was an easy one. Like when you talk about Biden's era of diplomacy, 
This was an easy one. He could have come in in day one, said Trump shouldn't have left the JCPOA. We're going to end the sanctions again. Let's re-enter the JCPOA. This was an easy diplomatic victory, and he didn't. He waited months and months and months and months. And then when he finally does start talking, he's not at all willing to end sanctions. So he's not correcting what Trump did. So the, Iran is saying, wait a minute, you broke the agreement. You slapped on the sanctions. We were in total compliance, which is illegal, by the way. You're only allowed to go back to sanctions if we're out of compliance. We weren't out of compliance. You broke the sanctions and the sanctions. And Trump won't even do that. And then it gets even worse. You know, Iran says to the states, first of all, you're not showing us that you're willing to end sanctions. Second of all, how do we know you're not just going to break your promise again, right? So give us some kind of guarantee that if you sign the thing this time, your signature means something. And so the Americans say, you know, we're a democracy. We can't promise what the next administration will do. We can't promise what Congress will do. And then um, Trita Parsi at the Quincy Institute, you know, reported recently in this sort of amazing article that, that Iran was so... Um, flexible on this, that when the state said, look, you got to understand our democracy, we can't guarantee what future administrations will do. Iran's hardliners, right, you see how hardline is this, said, okay, that's fine. We accept you can't control future administrations. Just promise us that as long as we remain in compliance, you'll stay in compliance through your term, Biden. That seems pretty reasonable to ask a guy, if you're going to sign a contract, then promise me that if we honor the contract, you'll honor the contract, at least while you're the president. And the state said no. So Iran's like, Phew. so you, you want us to sign a contract, but you won't end sanctions. You won't promise you'll keep the contract. And I, and I think now Iran's going back to saying, fine, then we need bigger promises. You need to promise that you're actually going to stay in this thing. And the states isn't willing to give those promises. So, you know, would you sign that contract? Right, right. Right. So 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 we're seeing nothing from Biden on Iran. And I think Iran is I think Iran is increasingly beginning to realize we don't want to live without this agreement, but we can live without this agreement. And, and we, also we, just to just to clarify briefly here, I, I guess maybe hardline is the right word, but I, I think Raisi is a very no, it's, it's the right word. It, it, I mean, it's the right word. That's the count. But. But but I mean. What I find interesting is, so when you talk to a lot of Iranian Americans that don't like Raisi, they're still against the way U.S. foreign policy is handled and the sanctions, because, you know, sanctioning Iran and hurting civilians in Iran actually is increasing support for a figure like Raisi. So it's yeah. it's odd because I feel like our policy actually does the opposite of what we are claiming that we want. So it's, it's very bizarre to me. I, I think it's not odd, right? That's what happens all the time. But I think you're you're exactly right. Um, what what this does is it makes people in Iran realize we were wrong again. By the way, this is like the third president to try this. We were wrong to trust America. The hardliners who told us we couldn't trust America were right. Um, this increases anti-U.S. sentiment. It rallies Iranians around um, Raisi. Um, you know, Rouhani did a very bold thing. Um, after um, Katami and Rafsanjani, he became the third Iranian president to say, let's try to deal with the West. And he signed this nuclear accord. And what happened? 
Um, the states put harsher sanctions on the Iranians. The Iranians' economy was hurt more and more and more. They're, they couldn't get medicines for, for COVID. Um, and, and what happens is, is Iranians start to say, you know what? Rouhani's idea sounded like a great idea, but he was naive. Um, he trusted America when he should have seen from Katani and Rafsanjani that we can't trust America and we can't trust America. Well, the, the, so, the other thing is it, it doesn't even have to be like some personal thing. I mean, if I were an Iranian looking at the American elections, I would be saying, well, it was nice that Obama uh, did this whole Iran deal. But then a Republican can get in four years later and just dismantle the whole thing. We can't even rely on them in an impersonal way because, you know, a president will change and say, well, we're done with this. Yeah. And, and Iran's seen that before. You know, Iran's seen U.S. presidents make them promises and just break them actually without an election, the same president. But but you're totally right. They, they don't they can't trust the president. They can't trust the system. And and that's why this time they want some guarantees, because, you know, the important thing here. It's, it's not just that if the U.S. breaks its promise and puts Iran back under sanctions, that sounds bad enough, but it's much more serious than that, because that makes every other country in the world afraid to sign economic deals with Iran. Because they say, if, if we sign economic deals with Iran and the states goes back into sanctions, then we're in violation of those sanctions and we're in trouble with the states. So when the states won't make a promise to Iran, that makes every country in the world afraid to make deals with Iran. And that leaves Iran isolated. And that was the whole point of all of this for Iran, was to escape isolation, um, be respected as a nation. And, and that's why you're seeing this sort of increasing idea in Iran, where they're saying now, look, we're not insulated from American sanctions. American sanctions are serious. But, but sanctions only work if everybody's sanctioning you, right? If, if you can't turn to anyone, you're in trouble. But Iran's realized they've got a bit of an escape. They're saying, okay, we're shut out of the Western market, but wait, this is what Raisi's doing that Rouhani didn't wanna do. Wait, we can turn East and we can trade with China and we can trade with Russia. And sure, it's not as good as being not being sanctioned, but it's not, we're not as vulnerable as we were. And, and so this sort of whole American hardline approach that we're just going to keep squeezing Iran is having the effect of squeezing Iran right out of the Western camp into the Eastern camp. Um, and, and they're actually seeing now, I mean, they, they still don't want this. American sanctions are serious, but, but they are saying, you know what, we're not under so much pressure to sign the nuclear agreement anymore because it, it won't starve us if we have a $400 billion trade deal with China, which they just signed, right? Um, it won't starve us if we're doing a 20-year deal with Venezuela. It won't starve us if we're trading with Russia and joining the Shanghai Cooperative Organization. So um, th they're squeezing the sanctions so hard that, it's, that it's, it squeezes so hard that it's popped and there's this leak. And, and I think in Iran, you're seeing this sort of increasing realization that we'd like to re-sign the JCPOA, but we don't have to. So then getting into this second Cold War, and I just had two more things I wanted to cover with you, and this is one of them. You also have written uh, recently in Responsible Statecraft about uh, China and Russia and asking the question of, uh, is the China-Russia strategic partnership turning into a military one? Uh, what are the clues we have to say that maybe this is turning into more than just a strategic partnership maybe it's becoming a military one as well yeah so um and and i, and I don't want to i don't want to um 
I don't want this to be taken the wrong way. I, I'm not suggesting that China and Russia are forming some kind of military partnership where they're intent on attacking America or taking over territory. You're also not saying that um, you're you're explicitly you say in the article that this is not quite a military alliance. Either. It's not an alliance. It's it's what some Russian scholars call a a, a tacit alliance or quasi alliance. The reason it's not an alliance, JG, is that and this is what we were talking about sort of at the beginning of the show is that Russia and China were very serious when they said we want to transcend Cold War alliances. We don't want a world of blocks and alliances. It's completely against the Russian and Chinese philosophy to start forming military blocks and alliances. They, they don't want to do that. Um, and so their response to the American Cold War it wasn't to form military alliances. Their response initially was, since we're both being strangled by America, let's turn to each other. And so first, first China and Russia turned to each other, and they did that in two ways. They, they signed a friendship agreement that essentially said, we won't always do what the other guy's doing, but we'll never act against each other. And, and, the, and the second one was um, in, in 2019, where they signed this kind of this comprehensive strategic partnership. So first they said, if, if we're the two powers that are going to be, you know, shut out by America, let's partner with each other. Then they turned out to make alliances like the Shanghai Cooperative Organization we talked about, but also the more talked about BRICS alliances with um, Brazil, Russia, um, India, China, and South, South Africa. So they, they, then they started forming these, these international organizations to counterweight the American unipolar world. And then as the, the military aggression you know, by the states got firmer and firmer and further, arms surrounding Russia and the former, you know, Soviet countries, uh, ships, airplanes increasingly going over, you know, Taiwan. Um, what, what happened is Russia and China started to um, kind of integrate their militaries. And, and, and the first really kind of important one like this was, was when, you know, Russia used to have regular um, military games where they would, they would strategize for defending against China. And what happened recently, you know, for the first time is instead of having these games to defend against China, the games included China. And, and what we're seeing recently is that is that they're, um, you know, they're completely um, integrating their militaries. They've got they've got um, joint command and control. So they're integrating their militaries. Russia has sold um, China you know, they call their latest generation weapons. Um, they've held um, naval games together. They've held war games together. And, and so what we're seeing is, is a quite unprecedented integration of, the, of their militaries in a way that neither country has ever done with any other country. So again, it's, it's not a military alliance, um, although, you know, they've called it a strategic partner or a quasi-military alliance. But yes, what you're seeing is that this is not what they wanted, but under pressure of the U.S. pushing this Cold War on them, the, the, the pressure on them has, has made this sort of military quasi-alliance squeeze out. The significance of that, of course, is that if the Cold War were to become a hot war, if the U.S. were to find themselves in any kind of war, they would not be just in a war with Russia this time. Um, they would possibly, and again, there's no guarantee because there's no alliance here. There's no 
There's no mutual defense agreement. Neither country has said we'll come to the defense of the other. But the increasing inter integration makes the risk that to go to war with one is to go to war with both. That's and another again, thing that comes up a lot is people will say, oh, well, you know, you say it's a new cool war, but there's no way in this uh, globalized world where we're all sort of relying on each other and et cetera, et cetera, that we could have a hot war. And I think that's very foolhardy for people to think that way about it. Yeah, I mean, this is not something I, I'm expert on, but you know, um, uh, just just his name just escaped me. El Daniel Ellsberg, um, you know, wrote that great book. Pentagon Papers, and uh, also the Doomsday uh, Machine. I think is the, yeah. So uh, in the in the book, the Doomsday Machine. I mean, he talks about and Chomsky's talked about this too. But you know, Ellsberg and the Doomsday Machine talks about like how close we really came at times and how it could happen. This is this is well outside my area of expertise, but. But, you know, my question would be like, do you want to play this kind of brinkmanship with organizations that have four of the world's nuclear powers in them? Do you want to take the world's second and third largest militaries, both nuclear powers, and force them into a position where they feel like they have to partner against you? And, and, and again, I don't want to overstate this. There is, no, there is no defensive agreement between these two countries. There is no agreement that if one of us goes to war, the other does. That, that doesn't exist. But, but it creates the risk with their militaries integrated, with the corner we've pushed them into. It creates the risk. And again, this is why it's not a new Cold War, but a second Cold War, is that a war against one of them risks being a war against both. And I, I, and I don't know why Biden's playing that game. It's just, I don't know, like you said, whether it could happen or not. It's just not a game I'd want to play. I don't know why he's doing it. Well, I, I was going to say, too, when people say, oh, um, you know, the, a new hot war uh, isn't going to happen. I, I often think to myself, well, that's assuming everyone's playing the game rationally. And I think when you escalate uh, conflicts within great power competitions and geopolitics, uh, the actors aren't always going to play in the most rational, long-term way possible. So you want to avoid risk as much as possible um, yeah. because you could end up in a catastrophic situation. That's my view. And you and you create the opportunity for mistakes. Like the the more you fly your planes in the zone, the more you send your warships in, the more these things escalate, the more chance you have for mistake. As you said, you might not always have rational actors. And sometimes JG, it's gone the other way. Um, Chomsky and Ellsberg both talk about times when it looked like, you know, the Soviets thought maybe they would have to fire a nuclear weapon, and you get like submarine commanders just saying, I'm not gonna do it. Um, but but you know, all kinds, there's, there's all kinds of conditions where mistakes can happen. And it just seems to me when you don't need to put yourself in that position of risk, why would you? And that's what I think is shocking about what Biden's done is that he didn't have to recreate this, you know, this Cold War situation. So why is he putting himself in a position where mistakes could happen when there was a clear alternative? You know, Russia and China both wanted to make some kind of world where they could cooperate. But because it was such, um, it was so much against Americans' philosophy not to be the unipolar power. It was such, you know, it, they were so against the possibility of sharing um, that they created the situation that we find ourselves in now. And, and um, I think it's a dangerous situation. Also, add to that, that um, especially under Trump, a lot of the agreements to manage the Cold War were, were torn down. Um, 
you know, the Secretary General of the UN has stressed the idea that in some ways this is more dangerous because we may not have the infrastructure to resolve or avoid conflicts that were put in place during the first Cold War. So in some ways, it's a more dangerous situation. No, def definitely, definitely. I I'm thinking, I always mention to people, um, and I'm blanking on his name, but he was one of the chairs of the 9-11 Commission, uh, Philip Zelikow. He wrote a piece in um, the CFR journal uh, recently saying, you know, we, we should probably avoid a hot conflict with China over Taiwan because we <laughs> may not win that conflict. And uh, I guess this leads into the last thing I want to talk about. I feel like whenever people like you or me talk about U.S. foreign policy towards countries like Iran, China, Russia, uh, the immediate thing that gets thrown back at us, and I think it's a very dishonest game that people play here is, Oh well, are are you a big supporter of Raisi or or Putin, or are you uh, do you believe everything China does is right? And you know, I, I kind of just find that to be a very, um, I think that's a dishonest game people are playing. That I know plenty of people at places like I, I mentioned Nyack earlier that don't really like the government in uh, Iran on all things, and yet they're critical of the sanctions. You know, I think there's real issues between China and Taiwan, and I think there's grievances on both sides of that. Um, it, on, on China's side, I think China looks at things like the KMT and the white terror. And, you know, they remember that. Um, and I think Taiwan has real grievances. But I don't think that means we can't criticize how the U.S. approaches these things. So how do you approach sort of cutting through the um, defamations that we get for critiquing U.S. foreign policy, the sort of uh, claims that, oh, you're, you're defending uh, these uh, foreign countries and you're uncritical of them? I mean, I think, I think in some ways, the same way you just, you just said, I don't think that you have to think that everything Russia or Iran is doing is right to recognize that something that the United States is doing is wrong. Um, it, doesn't, it doesn't mean that, that China or Russia have to be right on everything for the US to avoid a second Cold War. It also means you have to be very, very, very careful what you read in the mainstream media and make sure that you're reading sort of really good scholarship on what's happening in Russia and China, because some of the stuff we're told that they're doing nefariously are not true, right? There's an awful lot of propaganda. So you have to be really, really careful about what you read and what you sift through. But I think just as you're not a disloyal citizen if you criticize your own country, I think you're not you're not you're not in a position where you have to accept everything America's doing, even if Russia and China aren't doing everything right. It seems to me that the responses to what you're not happy with in Russia and China being to set up a second Cold War is a pretty stupid way of responding to what you're not happy with in Russia and China. Um, it's it seems like there's far, far more diplomatic things to do than to force a second Cold War especially when Russia and China seem to have shown such a willingness in the last several years to, in some way, cooperate with the U.S. And also, don't forget that, that part of what Russia and China have been saying is that um, they're not trying to like dismantle the international system and take the states down. They're very much committed to work towards working through the United Nations and international bodies. They just want to balance the states and give more say to to, to other countries. So there still are forums for resolving your problems with Russia and China short of starting a second Cold War. I, I mean, for me, and this is the note we can end on, is 
in my view, I think we're so committed to holding on to the U.S.-led unipolar order. And I, I think, you know, and I've talked to uh, Patrick Coburn about this, the journalist, I think we're already in a multipolar world. And the more we resist that, the more chances we get of really catastrophic consequences. And maybe as a country, we should just sort of accept and deal with the fact that there is going to be a more multipolar world in this 21st century, or at least the early part of it. Yeah, And, and, and just to add to that, we probably need to learn how to uh, use the diplomatic toolbox uh, because it seems just, like we've forgotten. You, you just froze on me for a sec. I, I lost that last thing you said you froze. Oh, on I me. said, I was saying, I feel like we've forgotten to use the diplomatic toolbox. People like Kelly Vlahos and some other people at Quincy have talked with me about this. We've forgotten that diplomacy is in is in the toolbox. We don't use it anymore. There, there our, is no there is no diplomatic toolbox in in America anymore. There's there's sanctions and there's threats and and all America does now is they 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 want you to yield to them because they see a unipolar world. So yield and and you yield by military threats and sanctions to force you to yield. There is no more diplomacy. That's where we sort of started the talk that Biden talked about diplomacy. But there's no diplomacy. I mean, Blinken doesn't know anything beyond sanction and compulsion, right? There's no diplomacy. Um, and I think you're totally right. We are in a multipolar world. How can you deny that China is a major world power? They're a major world power. But it's it's the American refusal to accept a multipolar world that's forcing them to try to stop these countries through sanctions and aggression. And that's what's making these countries band together. So, so just like one last thing on this, JG, is, is the irony of this to me is that in trying to preserve a unipolar world, the states is squeezing these countries to force them to join into partnerships like the China and Russia one. And the ironic effect of that is that in trying to prevent the multipolar world, we're creating a multipolar world. In trying to keep Russia and China down to preserve the unipolar world, we're forcing them to come together into large organizations to counterbalance America. And, and all of America's attempts to prevent a multipolar world are creating the very multipolar world they're trying to prevent. Yeah, and that's that's sort of my read on it, too. And I would say what's interesting about all of this is, you know, for all the measures we're taking uh, to supposedly uh, protect our national security. I think everything we're doing at this point is endangering not only our national security, but the security of the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's the short sightedness and the irony of it. And and I, I, other than this desperate attempt to hang on to a unipolar world, I I don't know why Biden's doing this. He didn't have to do this. He didn't have to become the president whose legacy was starting the Second Cold War. He didn't have to do that. But I think right now, if, if Biden's term were to sort of end right now and you were to look back on what he accomplished in terms of foreign policy, he's accomplished nothing in the Middle East. He's accomplished nothing in Latin America. His, his sort of foreign policy legacy right now would be that he was the president that restarted the Cold War. Um, and I, I don't know why he wanted to be that president. Do you, do you think it's all on Biden, though? Or do you, I mean, I, I think that, Regardless of who the president is, whether it's Obama or uh, Trump or Biden, I feel like what they are up against is a sort of, I, I mean, I like the term the foreign policy blob that um, Ben Rhodes used. I, I, I often think that it's, it's much harder to actually break the foreign policy consensus yeah. than one president thinks it is. That he's I mean, I think you're, yeah. you're obviously right. And I think nobody learned that faster or harsher than Obama. 
you know, who found herself accepting a Nobel Peace Prize <laughs> by, by defending going to war, right? And it's like, how did this happen to me? Um, and, and, you know, the sort of losing control of his, you know, State Department in, you know, Ukraine and Syria. I think you're totally right. There's all kinds of forces. And, and from, you know, from my outside perspective, it's so hard to see into the White House and look at who's doing it. So rather than, than Biden, I would say like the Biden administration, but I do think that so far the legacy of the Biden administration has been to accomplish nothing in the Middle East, Latin America, but just to sort of restart this Cold War. And whether that's all on Biden, I don't know, but I think that's the legacy so far of this administration. And uh, one last thing, just because uh, I know my listeners want me to ask about it. Um, where do you think that uh, Latin America on one hand and also Israel on the other hand where do they fit into all of this? Because we really didn't talk about uh, Israel and Latin America in regards to this new Cold War. So if you have time, maybe you could briefly describe where you think those two are landing. They're not on the radar. Um, I, I think I think the Biden administration has made clear from the beginning that an Israeli-Palestine peace plan is not a priority. I mean, they've made that really, really clear. They've said that overtly. It's not a priority. Um, they're not they're not working there. Um, in, in Latin America, they've been quiet at first, but but they're becoming more and more aggressive and disruptive. Um, the policy hasn't changed on Venezuela at all. They're increasingly aggressive on Cuba. Um, in Ecuador, when the Trump administration was trying to participate in a coup in Ecuador, the Biden administration at first after kind of wavering, said, no, we're not doing a coup, and they kind of stopped it. But but now we're seeing very aggressive behavior in Ecuador again, where the president of Ecuador just declared a state of emergency and stopped constitutional rights. And Blinken was in Ecuador literally the next day, um, astonishingly saying, we totally understand that sometimes you need to suspend constitutions. Like, what? Um, so so I think that they've there's been no change of progress in Latin America. I think Cuba and Venezuela have both said we don't see any difference between Biden and Trump. Um, I think they've been asking. I, I did a piece on Antwerp, I think, that was called like pausing diplomacy to confront Russia and China. It's like they've just taken the middle. Israel, Palestine's not on the radar. Latin America's had no progress. Um, that's why I was saying that so far, it's too early to talk about legacies, but that's why I was saying so far the legacy of the administration would be, from a foreign policy perspective, accomplishing nothing in the Middle East, accomplishing nothing in Latin America. Um, really, the one piece so far is um, escalating hostilities with China and Russia beyond reason. Um, what, what about the Afghan withdrawal, though? Because I know someone's saying, well, the, the Afghan withdrawal, we agreed with that. I mean, uh, most people at antiwar.com did, but. D did or didn't? Sorry, I, c I can't hear I you. I think most people at antiwar.com yeah. were happy that we finally withdraw. Although yeah, look, most people were saying it could have been handled better or there was debate about that, but yeah. And again, this isn't this is my expertise. So I haven't I haven't been focusing as much on this one. But but look, wh why was it right to get out of Afghanistan? Two reasons. One, never should have been there. Um, two, we've been losing that war for 20 years. Like staying there wasn't going to win the war. Staying there was just going to kill more people and lose the war longer. So yes, you should get out. But and again, this isn't my expertise. But but even there, I think that was really a Trump thing right, to get out of Afghanistan. If anything, this was just Biden finishing Trump's thing and not finishing it very well. So 
I don't even know if that's fair to give that legacy to Biden, but I do I do want to qualify that, JG, by saying that's a bit out of my expertise. So I'm I'm, I'm winging it a bit there, but but I don't really think that was, you know, that's not totally Biden's. That was actually sort of Trump's that we're getting out of Afghanistan. Biden just finished it off and um, probably could have handled it better. Well, hey, let's leave it on that note. How can my listeners uh, keep up with your work, your antiwar.com, anywhere else? And uh, do you have a Twitter, anything like that, anything you want to plug? Um, I'm terrible at plugging. I'm terrible at self-promotion. I don't, I don't really have my own website or Twitter. Um, you can teach me how to do that. I don't know how to do that. Um, the, the, probably the best way to follow me is at Antiwar because um, usually when I, I do a lot of my work for Antiwar, I'm a columnist there. Um, and when I do publish outside of Antiwar, they usually reprint it on Antiwar. So um, responsible statecraft, Antiwar. Um, but yeah, probably the, probably the best way to follow me is, a, is um, Antiwar. And uh, j- just so everyone knows, I need to have you back on in the future to talk about your writing on uh, Eisenhower and the military industrial complex. So I'm holding you <laughs> to that one. Yeah, that, that, was, uh, that was one I did for um, Responsible Statecraft. Um, yeah, just a really kind of instrument thing, how, how, how many of today's problems um, can get traced back to Eisenhower, who's kind of the president that everyone thought was like the really good best guy and no problems, but... Um, really really interesting about how much stuff well, he, he pointed stuff. out what the military industrial complex was he did. but he also helped uh foster it in a lot of ways i mean operation yeah and, and i think and and I'd, I'd love to come back and talk with us more but you know i think you could say in some ways although he kind of wanted to put an end to sort of these sort of overt wars um he really really encouraged the covert wars um it's really interesting yeah I, I, that was a piece i did for um for responsible statecraft, I think it's still up there on the column on the on the most res. I think you can still find it if you go there and and click that one. But um, yeah, I'd love to come back and talk about that anytime. Okay, well, thank you again, Ted Snyder, for coming on Parallax Views. Thanks so much for having me, JJ. It was great. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Ted Snyder. Hopefully, we'll be having him on more often. I really appreciate his work and recommend reading it over at antiwar.com. So check it out, folks. And as always, if you enjoy or appreciate the work I do here at Parallax Views, well, then please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. That's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. We've got everything from a $1 tier to a $100 tier with a $5, $10, and $15 tier in between. And of course, at the $10 tier and above, you get a producer's credit shoutout. So, producer's credit shoutouts to Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Brian, The War Nerd, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Orc, Black Tuna, Catherine, Nathan, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, and Jeffrey. If you'd like your very own producer's credit on each and every edition of Parallax Views, consider joining those listeners and supporting me at the $10 tier or above on my Patreon page at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. That's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said... Until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with J.G. Michael. To Parallax Views with J.G. Michael.
The way out is not simply to say, don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like crazy. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.